Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardhan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Carry a Big Stick, Ancient Indian Political Thought. What would your life have been like if you'd been born, or reborn, in ancient India? Going on what we've discussed so far in this series of podcasts, you're likely to imagine yourself as a sophisticated Brahmin, well-schooled in the Vedas and in ritual sacrifice, as a noble Kshatriya warrior, perhaps as a Buddhist monk or nun, or if that life seems too easy, a radical renouncer of the Ajivaka or Jaina school. But of course, it's far more likely you would have been a farmer or a cowherd. Texts like the Upanishads or from the Pali Canon of the Buddhists give us at best only occasional and indirect insight into the quotidian reality of such people. Good thing then for the Atha Shastra. This lengthy and elaborate treatise on affairs of state lays down detailed regulations governing the lives of all ancient Indians, from the king to the slave, from the Brahman to the ascetic. The reader who is interested in the dairy industry can learn from the Atashastra that ancient Indian cows wore bells on their necks so that they might be more easily located, that cattle were in danger of being attacked by crocodiles and tigers, that buffalo milk produces slightly more butter when churned than cow's milk, and that a cowherd who milked his animals twice a day in the dry season would have his thumb cut off. Of course, it is not only issues of milk and butter that are clarified by the Atashastra. Even the briefest skim through the text shows that it presents the cream of classical Indian thought on such topics as warfare, law, gender relations, slavery, and economics. It is a useful source for understanding the political context of Indian philosophy, packed with information about the four classes of society and the attitudes of kings towards their subjects and towards rival kings. So, there is no doubting its interest for the historian. What about its interest for the historian of philosophy? Should the Atashastra be considered an early pioneering work of political thought? Is its philosophical significance real but implicit, like the contribution of Panini's book in eight chapters to the philosophy of language? Or does the practical orientation of the Atashastra mean that we would be mistaken to approach it from a philosophical point of view? After all, the Indian philosophical tradition is known especially for its philosophy of the self, its metaphysics, its epistemology, not for its political thought. No less an observer than Max Weber, the founder of modern sociology, claimed that Buddhism in particular was too otherworldly to bother with politics, and one might easily assume that the same goes for ancient Indian philosophy as a whole. That assumption is, however, overturned by the opening sections of the Atashastra. From the very start, it's clear that however much this text may tell us about the lives of cowherds and farmers, it is written for the ruling elite. Part of its goal is to instruct rulers, and presumably would-be rulers, in the basic principles of governance. The reader of the Atta Shastra will learn, for instance, about the seven elements of a well-run state. The ruler himself, his officials, the territory over which he rules, the fortification, the treasury, allied states, and, last but certainly not least, danda, which literally means stick and is used here to refer to the army and to punishments imposed by the state. According to the opening lines of the Atashastra, the stick 
is the subject of a whole branch of knowledge called Dandaniti, which has been variously translated as government, science of punishment, and rule of law. Future kings should be educated in this art, among others, from a young age. Dandaniti may even have been the original title of the work we now call the Atashastra, but the latter title is in some ways more appropriate. Arta means advantage or success, so Arta-shastra might be translated as the art of the advantageous. That title fits the ambitions of the treatise, whose 15 books tell you how the ruler should wield the stick of legal punishment and the military to best advantage. You might be wondering when we are going to tell you who wrote the Arta-shastra. If only it were that easy. The treatise presents itself as the work of Kautilya, who was the chief minister under Chandragupta, who founded the Mauryan Empire in the northwest of the Indian subcontinent. Chandragupta lived in the later 4th century, making him a contemporary of Alexander the Great. According to legend, the two mighty rulers even met face to face. At first glance, then, the Shastra would seem to be the advice of a powerful official for his even more powerful monarch. The problems start with the second and third glances. Ever since the manuscript preserving the treatise came to light in the early 20th century, there has been disagreement over its dating and the role of the historical Kautilya in its composition. Worse still, the text seems to have gone through a subsequent process of reorganization, so that we are reading a much different work than the one that was originally composed. As if all that weren't complicated enough, the original version of the Atashastra itself drew on earlier writings. Like Panini compiling and building on the work of earlier grammarians, Kautilya, as we may as well call the author, reports on the political ideas of others, even as he sets forward his own. This is most clear in the numerous passages that juxtapose a range of opinions on some question. Kautilya's own view appears as the final and correct word on the subject, often because it adopts a reasonable middle ground in comparison to the extreme views of others. To give just one example, a question is raised about how a good ruler should seek advice. One idea is that the king should keep his own counsel, another that he should be open to ideas from absolutely everyone, even a child might offer a good suggestion, and still another that he should get the input from a circle of experts. Kautilya adopts a compromise position. The king should discuss each matter with a small handful of ministers, like Kautilya himself, though Kautilya is tactful enough not to say so. He adds a similarly pragmatic view on the membership of the king's council. Where others have insisted that some precise number of ministers is ideal, Kautilya says that it depends on circumstances. This ostentatious display of moderate opinion, in contrast to the extreme views of predecessors, may remind you of Aristotle. If so, it might be because you've been listening to the right podcast. Rival opinions are not just mentioned by Kautilya, but assigned to specific named individuals, making these passages in the Atashastra reminiscent of the dialogues described in the Upanishads. These reports may even reflect actual debates at court. Certainly, the impression is that there was lively discussion about political matters among ancient Indian intellectuals. This is confirmed by the existence of other writings from roughly the same period, collectively called the Dharma Shastras including the so-called Manu Sriti, or Laws of Manu. As we'll see in future episodes, these Brahmanic treatises 
will be an important inspiration in the Hindu tradition, for instance among thinkers of the Mimamsa school. For the moment, we can just note on the historical front that there are often resonances between the Dharma Shastras and the Atta Shastra, on whose basis scholars have tried to say which texts influenced others. On the philosophical front, we should pause to note the very term Dharma, which means something like upright conduct or duty in the widest sense, moral, social, and religious. How much should we read into the contrasting titles Dharma Shastras and Artha Shastra? Is the Artha Shastra really about expediency instead of morality? About taking advantage rather than taking heed of one's duty? That's certainly not the impression given at the start of the work. In a chapter which describes the stratified society of ancient India, the Artha Shastra defines the four classes, Brahman, Kshatriya, Vaishya, and Shudra, in terms of their various duties, and likewise for such social groups as householders and ascetics. The state will flourish so long as each group carries out its distinctive duties. And if that reminds you of Plato, you've definitely been listening to the right podcast. As for the ruler, great emphasis is placed on his character, with warnings about kings of the past who came to grief because of their wrathfulness, susceptibility to pleasure, vanity, and so on. Later, we are told that the king's happiness is bound up with that of his subjects. A similarly moralistic take on political life is found in the sections of the Atha Shastra that deal with law. Kautilya states that the imposition of justice is a crucial responsibility of the king. Many of the detailed legal provisions also seem to consider not simply which laws will be expedient, but which are most just. Kautilya has much to say about which punishments should be meted out for which crimes, and adopts the fundamental principle that the punishment should indeed fit the crime. This manifests itself in attractive ways, as when Kautilya lays down that people should be excused from blame for an accident if they took reasonable precautions, and in less attractive ways, as when he says that the fine to be paid for violating the rights of a slave is smaller than the one paid for wronging a free citizen. Yet for long stretches of the Atha Shastra, Kautilya takes a purely pragmatic, if not cynical, approach to his subject. Religion in particular features chiefly as a social phenomenon which the king should use to manage his subjects. This has led some readers to see the Atha Shastra as an early example of the kind of materialist and even atheistic attitude more explicitly espoused by the philosophical school known as Charvaka. Kautilya has good reason for this hard-headed approach. He conceives political life largely as a struggle against various threats to stability and prosperity. He calls internal and natural threats to the community thorns, and explains how the ruler may best remove these thorns by taking precautions against floods and other natural calamities, to say nothing of attacks by tigers and demons. Of even greater interest to him is the external threat posed by enemy kings. He supplies ample advice on how to defeat enemies in war, and also on manipulating and deceiving them. The moralist tone of other passages is nowhere in evidence as he speaks of how best to use spies, how to encourage subversive factions within a rival state, or how an enemy king can be tricked into letting himself be captured. When it comes to financial matters, Kautilya is not above suggesting some rather underhanded techniques for filling the royal treasury, 
such as planting counterfeit money on an enemy of the state as a pretext for confiscating his property. Such passages call to mind a different European political thinker, not Plato, but Machiavelli. The apparent tension between the moralistic and Machiavellian approaches in the Atashastra could be explained in light of the composite nature of the work. It combines ideas from different authors with different mindsets. Alternatively, one can see Kautilya as a moralist who is realistic enough to know that building a just society will require the ruler to get his hands dirty now and again. Or, one could argue in the other direction, the talk of Dharma, of the king's admirable character or of legal justice, is to be explained in light of Kautilya's practical aims. The king should impose moderate punishments and hold his subjects to their duties, not as ends in themselves, but as factors that contribute to the stability of the community and his continued rule. The oscillation between the king as stick-wielding enforcer and the king as moral paragon was embodied by Chandragupta, the monarch served by the historical Kautilya. His empire was built on conquest, perhaps aided by the power vacuum that Alexander the Great left behind when he departed from northwestern India. Yet, at the end of his life, he supposedly became devoted to the spiritual path of the Jainas. His death is even reported as the consequence of the radically ascetic practices of the Jainas, though it is also said that he was poisoned by none other than Kautilya, whose Atashastra just happens to mention a debate over whether a king's minister should seize power on the demise of the monarch. In the absence of an heir, the Indian tradition did recognize the possibility of having the aristocracy elect a new leader. This custom is reported by the Greek historian Megasthenes, and perhaps represented in a story that has Indra being chosen as the king by the other gods. But when a son was available, power would pass to him, and this was the case with the Mauryan dynasty. Which brings us to the most famous political ruler of ancient India, Ashoka. He was Chandragupta's grandson, and thus inherited dominion over the Mauryan Empire, an empire he went on to expand through further conquest. He gives us another and even more acute case of the paradigmatic choice that faces the ruler, whether to pursue brutal pragmatism or pious virtue. The many legends told about Ashoka have him making the former choice early in his reign. He was known as Chandashoka, or Ashoka the Cruel. He had 99 of his brothers killed to eliminate challengers for the throne. When he learned the 500 women of his harem were mocking his ugliness, he had them all burnt alive. He built a horrific prison and torture house known as Ashoka's Hell. But then he underwent a dramatic transformation, from merciless tyrant to a moral exemplar who despised violence so much that he disliked even the killing and eating of animals. A conversion, if you will, from stick to carrot. What could account for such an about-face? In a word, Buddhism. It was especially the Buddhist tradition that passed down and elaborated the legends of Ashoka. Unfortunately, it was chronologically implausible that the mighty king could actually have met the Buddha, so the biographers settle for claiming that in his previous life, Ashoka was a humble child who offered the passing Buddha the only gift he could manage, a handful of dirt. In his new life as a king, Ashoka turned away from his cruel ways after being converted by a Buddhist monk named Samudra. 
he took to the teaching with the same enthusiasm and commitment he had previously reserved for sadistic tyranny, and built 84,000 stupas, or burial mounds, in honor of the Buddha. The number may reflect a traditional figure for the number of atoms in the human body. Over the protests of his ministers, Ashoka gave away all his wealth, and on his deathbed had only half a piece of fruit left to donate to the monks. There are also tales of his showing humility by physically serving the Sangha, or Buddhist monastic community. Of course, such stories encouraged the generosity of later monarchs and aristocrats who were invited to follow Ashoka's example. But there was a deeper point here, too. Buddhists retained the Brahmanic conviction that political rulers should not only respect wise sages, but even defer to them, for instance by prostrating themselves at their feet, as Ashoka supposedly did in honor of a Buddhist arahat named Upagupta. In more recent times, the picture of Ashoka preserved in Buddhist narratives has been complemented and challenged by a series of inscriptions scattered around the former Mauryan Empire. These ancient inscriptions were written during the reign of Ashoka as a means of promulgating his edicts. Written in Prakrit, they were incomprehensible to future generations and were deciphered only in the 19th century. To some extent, the edicts confirmed the presentation of Ashoka in the legends. Some of the inscriptions lay down rules to be followed by Buddhist monks, and it is clear that Ashoka did identify himself as a Buddhist. On the other hand, he is far more ecumenical in his approach than the legends would have us believe. In several edicts, he insists on harmony between different schools, rather than encouraging all simply to adopt Buddhism. Sometimes, it even seems that he is beyond sectarian divisions entirely, at least in his role as king. Furthermore, it looks as though his personal conversion to Buddhism may have been rather gradual. There is nonetheless a kind of road to Damascus conversion moment implied in the edicts too, in the form of an inscription recording Ashoka's shock and remorse over the slaughter involved in his war against the Kalinga kingdom. The very conflict which expanded his empire to cover most of the Indian subcontinent. The Ashoka of the Edicts does present himself as a moral paragon, but not as the humble ascetic of the Buddhist tradition. Instead, he is a teacher who exhorts and instructs his subjects to observe Dharma. Or he is the wise father responsible for the moral education of his children, namely all those who fall within his rule. He encourages Dharma by appointing special ministers to travel through the realm as moral educators. Note that these ministers are not Buddhist monks, but government officials, which again suggests that Ashoka was adopting a lofty position of moral authority beyond all sectarian divisions. The actual ethical doctrines espoused in the edicts are nothing too spectacular. Honor your parents, respect life, speak the truth, show kindness towards animals and slaves. More interesting is the implication that political authority should be wielded with an ethical purpose in view. To underscore the point, Ashoka innovates by introducing a moral dimension to traditional kingly practices. He styles himself as one who still seeks conquest, but now through dharma rather than war, and records how he has toured his lands in an effort to promote dharma rather than to enjoy the pleasures of the realm. In all this, we may see a comparison between Ashoka and the Buddha himself, who, remember, was also from the Kshatriya ruling class and who was not content 
to achieve enlightenment and liberation, but sought to liberate others as well. Yet, Ashoka pursues this goal within the political life, rather than abandoning that life as the Buddha did. Ashoka is the king whose merit and dharma consist in the encouragement of merit and dharma among his subjects. This echoes the most idealistic passages of Kautilya's Atashastra, such as the one that makes the king's happiness inextricably bound up with that of his subjects. Naturally, one could take a more cynical view of the edicts. Ashoka was one of the first world emperors to use moral teaching to secure unity and obedience among his people, but he certainly was not the last. We might think, for example, of the program of public morality in ancient Rome during the reign of Caesar Augustus. But even the most jaundiced eye must see that Ashoka at least bases his rule on the consent of the people rather than violent coercion. As he puts it in an edict placed, significantly enough, in the conquered land of Kalinga, Ashoka wishes to rule by persuasion, not fear. As podcasters, we're more or less forced to follow his example. So we'll try to persuade you to keep listening, not by carrying a big stick, but talking softly, as we entice you with the carrot of a fascinating interview next time. Our guest will be Rupert Gethin, who will help us wrap up our look at ancient Buddhism. That's next time here on the History of Philosophy in India.